Yeah, no, I, Twitter definitely does that to a, a man's mind in writing. It, it's partially why I've really appreciated this sort of resurgence of the blogosphere. I guess some would say that it never really went away, but there are maybe like four or five bloggers that kind of just stuck it out. I think of like Vox Day and a few others, but mm-hmm. uh, everyone kind of went to Twitter and the, the, the group chat culture and everyone kind of knows everything through osmosis through their mutuals and what gets retweeted. And I, you're definitely right. It does mess with your ability to think or how you formulate a thought. Am I formulating this in 240 characters or less or a thread, or am I telling people to tweet that like I'm, I'm aching for a hit or something, you know, it's very, it's a very strange way to look at how as a writer or as someone trying to come up with a, a political thought that, how do I get this out there like mimetically rather than long form storytelling or actual fleshed out opinion? Yeah. And I mean, that's one reason why I'm, I'm pretty terrible at writing just straight up commentary is I, one thing that kind of, I find repulsive about Twitter after a while, which as I was saying, I just kind of have to get away for a while. And that's true of kind of all, all of those like online platforms that are similar to Twitter is that it just gets to this point where if I try and put my thoughts down in like kind of a longer form commentary sort of thing, it's just how much of this is me writing the zeitgeist of, you know, how people talk about things on Twitter and engage with these ideas. And I mean, not to sound like high school kid is I'm 14 and this is deep sort of thing, but it's like how much of this is my thoughts that I've actually, you know, looked at closely through my own process and how much of this is just, you know, something I'm picking up, like you said, via osmosis. And I haven't really, you know, sat down and actually considered it. Yeah, it's certainly like, and that's the thing with like group chats is, is that uh, you'll, you'll have people telling you that that's a good idea or that this is a place to workshop, but I'm, I'm workshopping for an audience that I more or less already have, not the audience I might want to have or something like that, which um, I guess raises one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, and then I guess we'll get into introductions because this is kind of short. Um, this is your second book, correct? Yes. Okay. And do you, where do you see sort of this alternative or online literary sphere going? I mean, there's been quite a few friends I've had on uh, who've written books that I think are actually quite good and well put together. Um, although I say that with full reflexivity knowing that I haven't read a lot of fiction since college. And so it's kind of nice to break myself out of that nonfiction trend by reading what my friends have written. And I thought it was pretty good. Um, So with this being your second novel, I guess it it does raise the interesting question. Like, where do you see this sort of alternative literary scene going? Is there any future for it? Is there no foundation for it to stand on? Um, And, you know, what are your general thoughts and just, publishing out there with these alternative publishing houses. I know a lot of people go with Terror House Press or Antelope Hill. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'm going to try not to stomp on toes. I'm not going to talk about anyone specifically because I actually don't have a lot of thoughts on particular people who write um, kind of out of the, the various overlapping spheres. But kind of going back to what I was talking about, about kind of the weird clickiness of Twitter getting to me, my my feelings on writing that comes out of, I'll just say the overlapping spheres of the online right dissident spheres, whatever you want to call it, is 
I'll feel that there's some potential there. And this is true of my own writing as well. And then I'll go back and I'll read something by like Walker Percy, for example, or uh, Melville. And then I'll think like, okay, no one's close. Like no one's even close to doing something like really, really like blow the doors off fantastic. And then I'll, you know, I'll, because I don't, I don't read a lot of fiction while I'm writing. I read a lot of fiction in between, but I don't like to read fiction in between um, writing sessions when I'm working on something. I'm very driven to get it done. And I'm, I'm working like every day or every couple days, putting a couple hours in partially because I don't like necessarily putting someone else's voice directly in my head. And obviously that can't be completely avoided. I mean, part of getting good at something is, you know, taking little bits of things here and there, either stylistically or, or however, from people who are better than you. So you don't want to avoid that fully and it can't fully be avoided. Um, but I don't, I don't like to mix it in that closely in my writing process. So I'll finish writing something or I'll take a break and be getting around to doing a second edit or a third edit or what have you. And I'll get into reading, you know, some of my classic favorite authors and, and I'll think, okay, no one in any of these spheres has gotten close to how good these authors are. And then, then I start to go back the other way. And I think like, well, this stuff has to start somewhere. Um, not, not even all of these just fantastic authors uh, like Penn Warren and a lot of the Southern authors who are really fantastic at just creating a world that you get sucked into and just feel like you're there. Like obviously their first one or two books, their first foray into fiction wasn't as, as fantastic and as, as mind blowing and uh, magnetic as their best works. So there's kind of two parts of me that are in conflict. And one is when I take breaks from writing and I step back into to reading some of my favorite authors and I just get that best of the best in my face, which is, I mean, either if you're reading other people's writing or in the process of doing your own writing, I mean, going and reading that stuff that's so fantastic is just kind of demoralizing to an extent because these are people at, at the top of their craft. Um, but then there's part of me that says, well, they had to start somewhere too. So maybe these overlapping spheres or scenes or what have you are in the same phase. Um, that being said, um, I think part of the nature of a lot of this, these things starting on Twitter and on social media platforms is there's a fair amount of kind of uh, backslapping and glad handing Um which there has to be to get along with people. But I think that it doesn't necessarily raise the level um, of quality. I think there maybe should be a little more, I don't know, criticism and, uh, you know, tough love between people. Um, with the clickiness of Twitter, it can get a little bit like, oh, I'll promote this or, oh, I like this guy and he said this, you know, and it, it doesn't really get as much into the like the okay what can change about this? What's good about this? What's keeping this from being great? And those like tough conversations. It's a little harder to have those because everyone kind of wants to get along in their little spheres. So that's kind of just giant brain dump my general thoughts on it. 
Well, no, I, I think that that's kind of a, an important thing to consider because, I mean, I, I think of the few people that do review these books. I know that uh, Matt Pegas and Dan Baltic, they have people on. And, I, and I, again, I like them, and it's nice that they're sort of introducing me to people that are writing books or doing non- uh, they're, they're doing fictional or some kind of theatrical work, which I appreciate in comparison to, oh, I'm writing like a political treatise and I want to discuss X, Y, and Z. That's always a little different than what's out there. And so yeah. I, I do agree with you that there probably does need to be a more critical lens because just off the top of my head, I think of like, well, the only person that like writes reviews is uh, Aristophanes' Revenge is on his Bullfrog Review substack, and that's about it. But um, before I get any further, I just want to let the audience and those listening that I'm speaking with the talented Marty Phillips, um, where I was blessed enough to be offered in a, a review copy of his second book, uh, Millennium, which we're hopefully going to get into today. But before we get down into it with any further questions, um, Marty, if you could just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and uh, as much as you feel comfortable and what inspired you to pick up a pen or a typewriter or a computer to start writing away since this is your second book. Well, I always, um, in my case, it's one of those situations where I, I kind of always wanted to write fiction. Um, I was a very avid reader from a young age. I spent most of my time digging through various lengthy series for example uh, i don't know if you've read the wheel of time series it's uh, like a, it's it's this fantasy series that's just when you think about those old classic late 90s like late 80s 90s early 2000s fantasy tome collections where the entire series is thousands of pages because you have these authors that are just writing <laughs> six, 700, 800 page volumes and their series is 10 books long. Um, so I chewed through a bunch of that stuff and I actually still to this day think the wheel of time series is pretty good for what it was. Um, the quality of world building and fantasy writing. I'm not a huge fan of fantasy, but for what it was, it's actually pretty good. Um, so I just spent a lot of my time uh, reading a lot of my time writing uh, school my margins of my notebooks would just be full of writing. I would fill notebooks with writing. Most of it was terrible. Most of it was fan fictions based off of stuff that already existed. Thank God I didn't have internet access, so I never posted any of it online. Um, so reading and writing and the, the dream of wanting to be good at writing was just kind of always there for me. And I think it's just because I spent so much time as a kid reading about these interesting worlds that that fascinated me. And um, I spent a lot of time alone as a kid. I grew up kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So I, you just have a lot of time, you know, just being outdoors with yourself thinking for hours and hours. Um, so you kind of develop a very active imagination in those circumstances. Well, I guess that the, the next thing I would ask then on that, in that point is, is that if, you know, I so I guess to get really into the book then, I mean, like there are four millennium is for those who haven't bought it or, and you obviously should, the links will be in the description is these four lovely vignettes that kind of cover the early two thousands up until right after the financial crisis. And, you know, you just mentioned that you sort of grew up out of out in the middle of nowhere. And so I was just wondering, um, I guess, what are your experiences with sort of the early aughts and, um, 
I mean, did you ever participate in anything like Occupy Wall Street or were, were you paying attention to the world back then? I don't know how old you are and you don't have to tell me, but it, it, it definitely feels like you have some experience with that world in a much more vivid memory than, say, someone like myself, who's only uh, 27 does. Yeah, well, I'm I'm around your age. I'm just a couple years older than you. Um, but my my experience with it was very similar uh, to most of that general millennial 90s kid experience. Um, and a lot of it is very, very vivid for me and very evocative because starting with especially 9-11, uh, so much of it was experienced through um, what I call the world story, which is these anchor point events that are kind of given to us as these mass media occurrences like 9-11 had geopolitical implications obviously it it still reverberates to the world today we didn't leave afghanistan to just what a year or two ago um a little over a year ago i think yeah um and so obviously it had these massive these massive um effects on the world that are still being felt but just as significantly these events, whether it be Occupy Wall Street, which I wasn't part of Occupy Wall Street, but I was paying attention to politics at the time and the, and the news stories. And they, they create these just big anchor point touchstones that everyone in the generation has certain memories that are built around those. You know how sometimes, I don't know if you've had this experience, but maybe you're listening to a podcast and like, watching something at the same time or listening to a podcast and maybe like, I don't know, I did this during college, listening to a podcast and like playing a flash game on the computer. So, so when you go back and you play that flash game later, you have this kind of inkling in the back of your head of whatever you were listening to at the time. And you're like, Oh, that's right. I was listening to this while I was doing that. And in a similar way with these anchor point events um, that are just as big of media spectacles as they were, actual world-changing events have these kind of other things tied to them um, in, as far as the significance and, and what was one was doing at the time or feeling at the time. And I think especially with millennials, 9-11 is really that starting point where you're just kind of getting to that age and it varies among the generation. But for a lot of millennials, you're just kind of getting to that age where you're realizing that there's a bigger world out there that has things that you don't quite understand but you're, you're just starting to figure out that there's something outside of that tiny little, you know, tunnel vision you have as a child where everything is, everything is, everything is like very soft and there's Vaseline on the lens. Everything's kind of fuzzy. Even if you didn't grow up in the best circumstances, there's this child, childishness that, that like papers over it and makes it easier to experience because you don't feel the harshness of things as, as readily as when you get older. Um, and so right when a lot of millennials are getting out of that child phase of that kind of fuzzy world, we're birthed into kind of starting to grow up with this giant out of nowhere, almost apocalyptic cataclysmic event like 9-11, which really starts off what turns into the the millennial turning in on oneself where you have you have after that in the early 2000s the development and increase of internet culture 
And so it makes it so much easier for the millennial who's been birthed into coming of age. What is being told to us is this very scary, terrifying world where absurd, chaotic events can just happen at any moment. It makes it very easy to then turn inward and escape into the world of internet cultures because that's a whole lot, you know, cozier and less scary than a world where 9-11 is possible. Yeah. And I mean, for me, that's definitely the the short story out of all four that kind of hit me the most uh, in part because I, I didn't live too far from D.C. when it took place. And so like my dad was there in the Pentagon and for a long period of time, um, we thought he was dead until much later in the afternoon. And so it was uh, a story that was rather it, it's very interesting kind of looking back, reading these stories and just this where I think we're just beginning to sort of put down a historiography to it, especially because as you kind of pointed out in your sort of introduction, your, your preface to the book about the millennial generation has lived a very tragic existence. Um, and I think that there, that's a lot of truth to that because we've kind of been this generation that has moved inward and on itself looking to escape every sort of tragedy and just happenstance of things that are clearly far more planned or coordinated than we might want to think so. I mean, I, I remember very clearly in the months and weeks after that attack that, you know, my mother would just tell me, yeah, that like that evil's in the world that exists. And she would apologize as if she ha had something to do with it. And she didn't, but she would say things like, well, you know, I, I wish I could have sheltered you more. And I mean, like you can't shelter your kid after watching, the television day in and day out for weeks on end, the same thing over and over again, the towers getting hit or the Pentagon or the Pennsylvania field or the plane wreckage was at. And I, I think that that's a, a point that a few people are beginning to look at is, is that you had this generation of kids that either decided to go to war right afterwards. And that sort of rah, rah America moment, or they, you know, they got a little older and they recognized that the the promise that you could be anything if you go to school and do all the right things and uh, cross your T's and dot your I's. And that was taken away from them under the financial crisis. And we're, we're probably about to live through uh, another one. And and there's sort of those articles where they're saying that this might be the millennials' last chance to, to get some <laughs> actual wealth in. And you just kind of like there's this foreboding sense of dread where you're like, I've lived through all of this. And um your your book to me reading it this is why I, I quite enjoyed it. i was very happy to have a review copy it was just that it was very cathartic for me to read it because i mean i grew up as an army brat and I, I i saw the world from the outside and so i came back to the united states like a little over a decade ago and the aftershocks of the financial crisis because it never really hits the military you know it never hits it never mm -hmm. hits the u.s government like at least the armed forces and so you're you're beginning to realize that for everyone who stayed in America and was a civilian or didn't have an army family or anything like that, you're like, oh, the world is radically different than sort of this insular, neoconservative, like, you know, miss me yet, George W. Bush kind of moment that you might have had as a kid in comparison to the the world outside. And um, I, a friend of mine asked me, and he was referencing Norm MacDonald when he, he did it, but I, I felt like it would be the first place to ask this question. Um, where did you get your ideas and where did you, what inspired you to write this book? So, well, I got my ideas from all over. I mean, just to kind of explain the structure of the book and why it's structured this way as a way of answering that question. It's, I consider it one story. 
And having read it, I think, hope you'll understand why I say that. It's an anthological novel because it is a, it is four separate vignettes, but they are chronologically metaphorical to the progression of events that happened after 9-11. So the, for each section, the characters are different. The setting is different. Um, there are definitely very strong themes and imagery that's carried over between them. Um, but it, what it represents, despite having different main characters and different kind of general plot, plot points, um, it represents that progression. So um, I wanted to pay um, homage to different types of stories that I liked reading when I was younger, and I think are kind of underserved um, in today's in today's world of writing, in part because they're out of vogue, and also in part because a lot of that got tilled under by, you know, post-structural, uh, like postmodern, a lot of the new like stream of consciousness, um, kind of surrealist uh, writing styles. So um, just to kind of give a, a little bit of an overview of the thinking and structure behind each story. The first one is kind of, um, it's kind of like a Twilight Zone story. It's a kind of wink to the kitschy American kind of morbidity about these massive events. Like uh, some people might think it's in bad taste to write like a dark comedy about 9-11 where a guy, you know, is stuck in a Groundhog Day time loop, having to live the day over and over again. But when you think back to something like The Twilight Zone in the 1950s and early 60s, I think it ran into the early 60s, you have these things like, um, I think there's an episode where a guy finds out that he's been like body replaced with Hitler or something on like near the end of the war. And he's like, oh no, like Germany's being overrun and I'm Hitler or something like that. And it's just like, there was this kind of like dark, dark humor about serious topics, even back in like the 1950s, early sixties and things like the twilight zone um, where they did that same sort of thing about big world shaking events. Um, but they kind of give it a little bit of a sarcastic wink, not in a way that necessarily cheapens it, I guess, but in a way that in this kind of kitschy American way um, presents it in a way that has a lot of the the gravity removed from it and replaced with this kind of, I don't know, like very American morality tale sort of uh, replacement version. And um, I feel like those stories aren't really told very much anymore, or at least not in that style. Another example um, Charles Beaumont would be an example of that. He's kind of an overlooked author. He actually co-wrote some of the Twilight Zone episodes. I don't know if I would recommend reading him. He actually, he has some good stories, um, kind of hit and miss. Um, but that's kind of an example I would give, um, of someone who writes kind of similarly to what I was trying to capture in the first story. And then it moves on to, um, the second one is definitely a, an homage to Joseph Conrad, um, like the Island adventure story, um, that sort of things 
definitely not in vogue anymore. I mean, I guess you sort of get close with, you have the television from the early 2000s, like you have Lost, uh, a few things like that. Um, but that's a little different. Um, and then the third story is just like a classic haunted house story. Kind of pulpy in structure, but not, I would say, in subject matter. And then the last story is kind of a combination of like a maybe a sort of Grisham-esque um, like financial drama thriller, business thriller with a little bit of um, Cervantes and like Don Quixote thrown into it. So it was, I was just trying to kind of pay, um, pay some due credit to these different styles of stories that I read growing up that really aren't that popular anymore. Um, at least not taken that seriously. And I wanted to kind of sew them together into a, a whole unit that progressed as as one entity um, and sort of worked. I don't know if I accomplished that, but that was what I was trying to pull off. Well, I, I definitely think what you accomplished was kind of covering maybe all four. And this is so this is very generalizing and I, I don't mean it to sound like I'm putting it down, but it feels like you kind of covered all four quadrants of the sort of political compass that people like to use. And because every person that kind of every story covers someone I know who's mm -hmm. grown up in these in this in this last 20, 30 years and was shaped by it. You have, of course, in the second story, Holy Hunt, I know guys that you know, joined right after 9-11 and are dedicated to this idea of, Amer you know, constant change is here to stay, rush style of America's new world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know people who've lost their family in, in September 11th and, you know, how the financial crisis has destroyed small town America, because I definitely live in one of those places now. And then, of course, um, the young rebel idealistic mess up who's only now just beginning to grow up after you know, years of protesting the man and globalism and the financial system. So it's just, you, you kind of covered the, the archetypal characters or character arcs of the millennial man um, and just the world in that respect, which I, was something that I really appreciated. I actually liked the haunted house story a lot because you start off delivering this rather dour kind of like yeah like the you know small town america is not what it used to be you know we're gonna put a dollar store up and that's sort of the end of what we are i mean even where i live that hit home because i you know there's mm -hmm. my town is sort of protesting the development of a dollar general uh, and then yeah. it, it takes this wacky turn about a like this egyptian like beetle god underneath the basement of this old house and i was just like i'm with it i'm all for it which was really <laughs> i was like this is a very positive turn from a very sad story um and uh it was it was something quite enjoyable um I don't know. And it's very funny that you talked a little bit about tastelessness in respects to uh, a September 11th story, because so many people nowadays, it, it's memed all the time. I, there's a, a sort of a, vid, a, a YouTube personality who reviews television and media, and he reviewed the one of the later Pixar movies, Turning Red or whatever, and he ended it with a September 11th joke. And um, I was just like, that's it's interesting that it only took 20 plus years to make you know, the, the largest mass casualty event in the United States history um, as, you know, humorous. Whereas mm -hmm. you, I think, kind of appropriately, even though someone might say it's Groundhog Day or whatever, I think that you did a good job at sort of illustrating that, no, this is one of those 
big events that will be remembered because that did fundamentally change the country and it changed the world uh, like we were talking about earlier. So I, I, I don't mean to gush, but uh, I, I think that she did a very good job with that respect. And I guess I want to kind of go through each vignette and maybe ask you a few questions. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I guess, I guess with the first one, I'll, I'll just start there. Falwell. Um, we're, do you have a particular religious tradition or feeling? I mean, this is, are, are the main character we're, we're with is uh, who would be one of the jumpers um, on, on, in the Twin Towers and is met by a holy angel as he's falling to his death and is kind of on this little mission that turns into a Groundhog Day scenario to find out what, what's the cause behind it. Um, it's very good. I would recommend it. It's probably my favorite of the four. But uh, was there, I mean, what is your 9-11 story? What is your religious experience? If you are religious, um, what, what inspired you to write this one? Well, my 9-11 story is basically probably like most millennials my age, which is, you know, you get woken up at whatever time in the morning by your mom or whatever, or if you're at school, what have you, and and told what's happening and you get, you know, sat down in front of a TV and everyone's watching it. And, and so there's nothing particularly remarkable about my experience on 9-11. But as far as like, I, I was raised um, kind of just generally low church Protestant. Um, and so the, uh, yeah, the, using the angel in the way that I did is kind of a nod to, I don't know if you recall this, this series, there was this television series that was running at the time that 9-11 happened called Touched by an Angel. My mother loved that show as a kid. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of part of it is kind of a, a little bit of a nod to this kind of very precious moments, kind of very kitschy, shallow religiosity that America had pre 9-11. And a lot of that kind of died very quickly after 9-11. Like a lot of that was turned into either, you know, rock rib Republican we're going to put a boot on Saddam's neck, whether or not he has anything to do with this or, or that sort of thing. Um, but that kind of like that kind of syrupy, sweet, precious moments, um, early two thousands, late nineties, just low church, Protestant, very nice people, but kind of politically unserious in a way. Um, it's just this art pre 9-11 artifact that existed. And I recall from my childhood and then it just kind of vanished. So that's, that was one, that was one part of depicting the angel the way that I did is kind of, was kind of in a way to, to pay, to, to pay uh, homage to um, the kind of, it was pre Hallmark really because the whole harm Hallmark channel thing and all that didn't happen until after, but this kind of kitschified American Christianity that, that especially low church Protestant that really kind of got blown over by nine 11 and the kind of patriotic American uh, Christian culture didn't really know how to react to nine 11. And that a lot of it, turned into just this kind of, I don't know, kind of like blind George Bush patriotism. Um, and so, 
that was one reason why I wrote it that way was because that was kind of like, that was kind of what that low church Protestant culture was like before 9-11. And in the way that the main character doesn't really know how to deal with the angel and there isn't really any, there isn't really any direct path of redemption shown to him. I mean, his fate in the end, you know, is really no different than his fate would have been had he not met the angel, physically speaking. And so it's just kind of this question of what did, what did that kind of precious moments touched by an angel version of America, what, what was its response really to 9-11? Was it a response even? And would things have have gone differently if if people thought about that sort of kind of kitschy religiosity differently than they did before? Because in my experience, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of disappeared. I mean, people kind of had to sober up from that, at least the kind of overbearing sweetness, I guess, that I that I saw pre-9-11. Yeah, I mean, the sort of saccharine sweet, uh, you know, goodnight John Boy type America definitely died that day. Uh, I'm sure Mm -hmm. it was already on the outs with respects to uh, the decades prior with global, like the global economy or deindustrialization, the Rust Belt emerging. But, you know, I I can distinctly remember going from like touched by the angel and then my mother like vividly complaining about the Dixie Chicks not supporting the war. (laughs) So like, you know, like I, I think you're absolutely right. Like there was this like gut retrenchment back into reality and uh, listening to more Toby Keith songs than I would ever like to admit publicly. So I, Mm -hmm. I think that that does kind of illustrate a very good point that, um, I think even if it, we did view it more religiously, I, I, I re- recall distinctly George W. Bush saying the words uh, crusade and people got really uneasy about those that, that use of terminology, you know, yeah. of course. Yeah. So it was very it was very interesting to see it, this tragedy be sort of for, framed in a in a religious sort of Groundhog Day story where even though this man is, you know, temporally doomed. I mean, he's still falling off the Twin Towers. He's still going to splat and meet his end. He's He's got this opportunity to at least say goodbye in his own way and to maybe serve some higher purpose. And I think for a lot of people, that's as good as it gets for some, especially without any tradition or belief system. You know, if I can leave my mark somehow doing something great for some greater purpose, you know, remember me and that's that. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's bizarre nowadays where I do see memes about the people who jumped and that we've kind of dehumanized ourselves to this and this was a very human story despite its supernatural endeavor and Mm -hmm. i I think that that does echo a lot of the fact that yeah like 20 years later we can joke about it which is a bizarre thing to think about because again like the internet um we've all turned insular we've all turned to our phone or you know computer screens as an escape and um like i was at i was at uh you might have I don't know if you had some a similar person or maybe you were like this, but um, we had our, we had our little post uh, liturgical coffee hour meal. And one of the people who's my age, she's 26. And she was just like, yeah, I had a live leak phase when I was younger. <laughs> and I was just like, um, cool. I'm glad I'm not alone, but it's a weird thing to just say publicly, like inside our church yeah. hall. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like it does desensitize you quite a bit. And so, these these stories not just this one but the other ones kind of you know put the real humanity back into it which i think is very hard to get back if at all once you've 
consigned yourself to the digital world that we live in? Yeah. Yeah. That is the question. I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we can get it back, but we'll see. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if we can either. I, there, like we were talking about even before we went live, you know, there, there are things that people share on, on in group chats and things. They're like this, this little meme that has been made is requires, you know, 200 hours worth of online exposure to comprehend and they can't share this <laughs> with normal people. And it's like, that's terrifying to think about. Yeah. And, and, and so this, uh, that story was kind of a nice return um, back to reality. But um, before I guess we go to the next story out of the four vignettes that you wrote, is there one that you're the most proud of or that you like the most? Um, I'd say it's probably a tie for me uh, between, and that's going to sound like a cop out, but <laughs> it's, it's you're the author. Like, you get, you have all rights to do that. It's going to sound like an excuse so I can mention why on both, but um, it would probably be a tie between Holy Hunt and uh, American Bastard. And for two very different reasons. The first is because when I was, I felt the best about Holy Hunt when I was writing it, I felt when you write fiction and you're kind of in the in the whir whirling dervishes of just writing as much down as you can and, and editing on the fly. And I write everything down by hand first, which is I don't recommend that, but it's what I have to do. It's the only way I can. I, I, I do it as well for my sub stacks or my video scripts. I don't blame you. Yeah, it's something about how my like my brain connects to my hand and the speed of writing. I can edit typing. I have to write it down the first time by hand. But anyway, when you're kind of caught in the middle of that process, you kind of get a feel for like whether you're really gelling with what you're writing and you can like you really feel like, OK, I like this. I like I like what I'm writing. Um, and obviously you have to write you have to like what you're writing I mean, to a degree to write it down, but there's this certain feeling where you're just like, I, I have this kind of harmony about what I'm doing where it, it just, it works in my mind, the way, the way that it's going down on the page. And so that's why I liked Holy Hunt so much is because I just enjoyed writing it. And I felt like, you know, I felt like it was good in a way that you don't always feel, even if you think you're doing something competently um, you don't always get that feeling of like, okay, this is working. And I feel like I know it's working. Um, and then American Bastard, the reason why I like that one so much is because it was actually a very hopeful story. And I don't really write those. <laughs> so <laughs> when I got to the end of it and I knew how I was going to end it and uh, kind of finished off the rough draft and was like, okay, this is where I'm going to end it. Um, actually kind of felt a little kind of buoyed up by the subject matter because I was like, I'm ending this on like a happy ish note and I feel like it works and isn't contrived. And I feel good about the fact that it ends in this kind of positive way in this uplifting direction, which is just very uncommon for me. So that's what I enjoyed about writing that one. And so I'd say those are the two that I liked the most for very different reasons. Um, but those are the reasons why. Well, I mean, they're, each story is good. I would highly recommend that the audience, again, takes the time to read these. Uh, Holy Hunt was definitely the one that gave me, and I know that you had mentioned, uh, I, I, I DM'd you before we set this up because uh, I had just asked, you know, it's like, 
how much do you like Joseph Conrad or something along those lines? Because uh, Holy Hunt definitely has the heart of darkness written all over it. And I say mm-hmm. that with um, not to say that you're cripping off of him. I mean, we all crip off the greats and whatnot. But I mean, it was oh, a yeah. very, very good um, homage to that story, but also just the way Conrad writes. Uh, and it fits very well, I think, in the context of the escalating war on drugs in the 2000s and anyone that can remember like the violence in Ciudad Juarez in like 2006 and 2007, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it's right next door. And then of course the opioid crisis. And it, it was like the heart of darkness met Jason Bourne and Robert Ludlum because, you know, we have these, <laughs> these drugs that are experimenting on us soldiers, but Oh, by the way, we're paying off the cartels and it's all told through this like story of a, some rich kid that's just got stuck in the middle of it, whose mind is just fried from drug over, you know, being tested on as a guinea pig. And mm-hmm. uh, it probably has one of my favorite passages in the entire book. Um, that discussion about what America is from sort of our gone native soldier. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I kind of find it fitting. If I, if I can pull it up real quick, I'd love to read it, but um I, I know what about joseph conrad do you appreciate um is there more besides the heart of darkness that have you read of him uh what inspired you to write this story yeah i've read uh i've read a decent amount of conrad he was very prolific so i haven't read all of his stuff but I, i've read some of his shorter stories i've read a number of his novels um obviously yes i've read heart of darkness multiple times i used to have passages of it memorized i don't wouldn't trust myself anymore. Um, and then also Lord Jim is exceptional. I always recommend that. Um, what I'll call the children of the sea, which has a different word in the title in the original version. <laughs> Fantastic. As far as like amazing prose, very hard to beat that book. Um, the, some, the certain type of individual of the Narcissus. I highly recommend that book. Um, also, what else did I read by him? Uh, Typhoon, one of his shorter stories is, is very good. Um, oh, what's the one that takes place in South America? The name is escaping me now. Uh, I can't remember, but <laughs> I read, uh, probably four of his main novels and a couple, couple of his, um, shorter stories. The Secret Agent's good. It's been very long since I've read that one though. So I don't remember it very well. But for me, Conrad, uh, his style is just fantastic. His prose is incredible. Um, And this is probably one of the most impressive things about him is he never, I don't think he really got into actually trying to publish anything he wrote until he was in his 30s after his his Navy career was kind of dying down. Um, Because in his 20s and early 30s, he was in the... uh, the British Navy. And I think he was a merchant Marine as well. And also the fact that English was his third language. So that kind of obliterates a lot of people out there who think they have good prose or want to have good prose. And like, Oh, this guy was born in Poland. Then he learned French. Then he learned English through French. So he writes better than 99% of people who write in English. So I always found that to be very impressive about him. The fact that he was kind of a late bloomer also, um, and, uh, yeah, the fact that he was such a pro- prolific writer and his style and his ability to just capture these, these very kind of 
awe-inspiring scenes. He he just lingers in these moments and does these just long kind of uh, very classical types of epic similes and uh, metaphors that just go on for like a paragraph. Um, and he does it so effortlessly. It's just, Conrad is just one of those prime examples of just fantastic prose. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I'm not as well read on Joseph Conrad. I mean, I've read Heart of Darkness and that would be just about it. Uh, although, you know, you can look at some of his other titles and they sound just as intriguing. And it's, it's funny I'm recording this now because we were just, I we had just had a show um, that I do where we were sort of eulogizing the late Cormac McCarthy and mm. someone had kind of called uh, called us out and they're just like, yeah, you can't talk about like these great writing traditions and then like talk about your friends. And it's just like, I don't think you understand how poorly read most people are nowadays. Um, I, I think about like that. I think he's like some Asian or Hispanic kid. He looks very young, definitely a Zoomer where he just asks women like name 10 books that you've read and they're kind of all flabbergasted. And I, I, I just think that that's the case for so many people. Like they can tell you about how many videos or essays they may have read, but like when's the last time you read like the classics or the books? And um, definitely is a, it was a nice moment of reflexivity. But I, I could tell that Joseph Conrad was definitely in this story um, and all over it um, in a good way. And I, I think that it, it highlights it quite well in the prose, not just the description, but these um characters that have just sort of found themselves adrift on this island somewhere in the gulf of mexico or off south america a direction that we don't really know in particularly but you know all these questions about morality kind of get thrown out the window of course when we're inside of uh you know a, a flight or flight situation where we have to to survive and morality gets thrown out the window despite the fact that clearly you can watch someone go insane when that happens mm -hmm. it's just it's it's quite good um and i would highly recommend that, that people do uh give this one a read out of all of them it's the longest story out of all of the well this one and american bastard are both pretty long but i think this one's the longest um and yeah just this interesting sort of way to to come about coinciding all issues of sort of our our day-to-day -day life about you know, the military's exposed to all sorts of weird shit. Um, it's very funny. I don't know what your position on the whole coof business was, but like when the vax was just rolling out, my dad was all like, I was in the army. They're, they would give me all sorts of shit. This is no different. Whereas I was way more skeptical about taking anything. I mean, I still didn't take it. And it was just, um, it kind of hits very hard there. And I, I will read this um, from your book. And I hope that uh, people can kind of understand what I mean by this look at America and, um, you know, he goes off the sergeant. He says, uh, you see, we have to die for America to change and America must change to cease changing is total death of the nation because America itself is change. From the beginning, it was a disruption of the old orders, the purest manifestation of a revolutionary energy, an undying war between men, which births glorious inventions for the mind, machines and systems beyond reckoning. The great proving ground, the creator, the cradle of the world's newborn triumph smeared with the mother's blood each new generation. America is a state of mind. Why do you think we spend so much money on legal and illegal drugs, therapy, entertainment products, experiences? It's all to maintain Americanism, which is that happy devil may care, even keel. That is why you have to die. You, me, Robbins, Conway, and Green. We're all very un-American, which is to say we aren't what America is becoming. 
America is now what it ever was, and it can only be what it is now. I just, I read that, and I'm like, that sounds very similar to what I've heard from both Democratic and Republican speechwriters and administrations. It's a very America is an ideal, and ideals are worth dying for. It, this is a man who really direct. Um, it's something I would very from someone for off that very homey. I def was like, yep, this is probably one of those quotes that's going up on somebody's Goodreads or uh, someone's review of the book for sure. Yeah. And the, the thing about Ashley, um, I didn't want to write Sergeant Ashley as just like a, a cliche of, of this kind of new Americanism. But it's funny, I can't remember who it was who tweeted about uh, a couple days ago about regime bra. <laughs> the idea of regime bra being this like kind of muscular Hemingway-esque, like super pro, like, you know, gay American empire type thing. Um, that there's this new emerging regime bra. And it, he was, I can't remember who it was, but he was tweeting like, am I imagining this? Or is like this guy coming into his own? Because like you have these characters like during the Trump era, what was that name that John John Schindler or whatever, that ex-CIA guy who was, you know, conspiracy theorizing about how Trump was a Russian agent. And then you had, uh, was Tom Nichols, that ex-Navy guy. Yeah. Um, you have these like ex-military tough guys who are, you know, they're just the American system boiled down into its most concentrated form into this this entity that's presenting itself as patriotic, but it's really, it's patriotic in the new sense in that, like in that you and I, people like us are very unpatriotic in that we're not what America is becoming. And so I wanted to present that in a way that, you know, wasn't a cliche of itself and could be manifested into a character like that. Um, but kind of before his time, because like this is happening, this story takes place in like the early 2000s. I can't remember exactly when I placed it, but it was around like not long after the financial crisis. So the events on the island are probably taking place around like, I don't know, 20, uh, 2013 or something like that. 2012, 2013. Actually, 2012, I, I think. I, I pegged that story way earlier than, than that. Um, I, I was thinking about like tourists being held hostage and well the, the drug trade but that's interesting because yeah I, I really would have thought 2006 2005 well, you have to keep in mind the flashback at the beginning about his life before he gets in prison takes place years before because yeah. he's, he's in captivity for years and then the events on the island after he's sort of accidentally rescued from captivity would take place later on um so Ashley is kind of as if we're using these Tom Nichols types regime bro types is a little ahead of his time because that's definitely more of a became more of a, a post Trump thing I think like the muscular military guy who's 100% riding for Biden like you know that that kind of persona is definitely more of a a post Trump uh, phenomenon. Um. But I think it's only going to become uh, more and more so a thing. I I can only really see things going more that direction, especially with, you know, 
there's been a fair amount of like purging from the military. I know COVID was used for that largely when it came to to mandates and things like that for for active military. Um, so I think that Sergeant Ashley is only more so going to become the reality. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I I don't know too many of the sort of like when I like when I I had a nice gaming group when I lived in El Paso, I did a lot of tabletop stuff and it was just all like white, you know, Gen X or older millennial dudes that were, were playing 40k or Flames of War or whatever and <laughs> very much the, you know, you can shoot off whatever from your mouth and it's usually some like Republican or right-wing opinion and I can't imagine that being in the military now. Um, mm-hmm. in part due to those purges and that there is to me i i think of regime bra as like evan mcmullen the like dorky spook character that has to rely on rhetoric because he's not the most physically imposing man mm-hmm. whereas like yeah ashley is the um right and willing to die for biden and um I, I have to sacrifice myself so that you know uganda and other countries can have homosexual marriage because that's what america is <laughs> like i, I definitely yeah. see that this uh, that man does exist i'm terrified to meet him in real life oh, yeah. but i'm sure that he does <laughs> well i'm sure he exists too uh, i yeah. don't want to meet him either <laughs> i wouldn't want to either yeah i would hate to meet that guy in a bar or something as we rights in ukraine or whatever it's the he's a terrifying figure to say the least but i mean it does sort of epitome epitomize that little that quote i read i think that does sort of epitomize the um america as ideal tradition that people want to sell and it's very funny to see sort of the america of today try and reconcile like this is a country with like the flyover chuds from say you know the our, our haunted house story that comes next in comparison to like, you know, the, the kids that hate the world. I hate my dad for taking me to church on Sundays. I want to like make it all progressive and gay. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, you know, we we're a country of like 330 some odd million people. And like both of these characters exist. And so it's fun to see like the army recruiting ads have like the 1776 rah, rah narrative. And all of the dudes in that commercial are like white chuds. Yeah. Um, and not the those guys aren't sergeant ashley those guys are like doing in towers on 4chan or whatever it's not yeah you know the cognitive dissonance is very real but also very deliberate so oh yeah yeah the the story is very much i think in line with that and how you know even for and we have this beautiful like i think it's beautiful or it's like it's an interesting storytelling device because while we as the reader you know we we have access to Lazarus, uh, as he's named, you know, this character has been, you know, kidnapped and used as a human guinea pig, it's just sort of as this, you know, root vegetable, uh, potato-like character sort of coming to his senses. Um, I think he's a neat storytelling device about the humanity versus the, like, die for, you know, die for the gay type mentality in Sergeant Ashley. And I think that it illustrates a good case study in who retains their humanity in times of crisis. Because that's a question that we're always going to have to reel with, no matter the war or the situation. I mean, to go back to our discussion over the internet, right? Like we've got people, you know, trying to to dunk on the current war in Russia and Ukraine over, you know, drone footage of a guy about to get bombed while he's making the sign of the cross. And like, you know, we're thousands of miles away, just like, yeah, this is so great. Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's so quick to lose our humanity. But then when you're in the shit, it's way different uh, after first contact happens. And 
you know, I, I just think that this story does a good job as a, as a case study in humanity versus like, I've, I have eaten the slop and I believe in the slop and I will die for the slop. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, part of the, part of the reason that I chose to kind of make the creature who then becomes Lazarus um, the way that he was is also to, I mean, the, this, the overall arc of the story is follows kind of a life cycle. Also at the beginning, you have the, the death of the previous generation. And then you have the, out of that, you have the millennial coming in, coming to age, kind of like birth cycle. And so you have this character who is basically an infant in that he's helpless. He can't really do much of anything for himself. If he has any opinions, they he's not telling them to anyone and no one really cares. And so it was also to illustrate kind of the millennial kind of as the hostage to world events that unfolded after 9-11 because um, Holy Hunt is also an illustration of the global war on terror. When you have the, the uh, conflicts between the tribes on the island, um, the way you have Ashley talking about that, like clearly there's analogies to be made there with the, with the kind of black and white whitewashing of conflict in the Middle East into bad guys, good guys. Obviously we're siding with the good guys. Why wouldn't you help the good guys? That sort of thing. Whereas the, the creature or Lazarus is just kind of dragged along. Like everyone else has their opinions. Ashley is this overbearing character. And in the end, what he says goes and then the creature doesn't even have an opinion on the matter. He's just there. He's just there and he has to live with the consequences, which is, I mean, those of us who are in, you know, high school, middle school, high school, early college during the global war on terror, we're kind of the same. I mean, we're hostages to this thing that we're just having to watch unfold and there's nothing we can do about it really. Yeah, no, I, that's why I find him to be like the best I, he's a, he's a good storytelling device for that because you know in, in that situation yeah i would probably be like lazarus i wouldn't know what's going on i don't know the full context of anything and all i've got are these strange characters around me that i'm just being pulled along by and as someone who grew up as an army brat whose life socialization and politics are completely co colored by the global war on terror and 9-11 like yep this definitely um like I said earlier, this was a very cathartic read for me and I'm trying not to let that like paintbrush my discussion with you, but <laughs> it's, it kind of is. And I apologize for that. Well, um, I think for any millennial, it's, yeah. it's supposed to be like somewhat cathartic for any millennial because I, I was writing about this on Twitter a little bit. I don't think like the, the story that properly addresses the millennial life and emerging into the world around these crazy world events that we had very little say in and are told that our generation is going to have to save the world when it comes to climate change, you know, terrorism, all this stuff. We're, we're going to have to fix things because the world's all screwed up. And then in the end we have, you know, 80 year old, 90 year old people still in office who don't seem to have any desire whatsoever to give up control. It's this mixed message of, of just paralysis that is just the story, you know, it's just the story of the millennial existence. So it is supposed to be cathartic for sure, because I don't think this story or I don't think this process has really been told in a way that isn't extremely self-indulgent. You know, 
the most millennial writing is just very kind of autobiographical in this neo sincerity sort of way where it it's about it's about their like experience and journey you know those horrible stories written by these women where they go on like they leave their husband and their family and they go on a backpacking adventure and that's the book yeah. and that's like the quintessential millennial like, isn't that fiction. literally the plot of eat pray love or whatever something like that or no there was a newer book that was made into a movie that had some big actress in it and it was it was some millennial woman who wrote this semi-autobiographical fiction about it's like into the wild like woman version where it's like into the sort of wild but you left your toddler behind and, and like divorced your husband you know it's like the ultimate like millennial woman dream um but that's like what most millennial fiction is like like it it gets lost in this like marketing self-aggrandizing just obsession with authenticity whereas like millennials were just obliterated by very advanced forms of marketing especially in the developing internet age and the refinement of television culture where they were just told that like you you have to be authentic and what matters the most is being authentic and your story cuz I mean, what, what did millennials have? We have MySpace, YouTube, like I'm sounding a boomer right now, but it was all about like, oh, you need to tell your story authentically. And that's how we, you know, data mine you and market to you. But then most millennials fell for it. So when they write what they think is meaningful things about the millennial experience, it's all, you know, it's all just their story, things about them trying to live authentically to their true self. When in reality, none of that stuff really matters. I mean, you want to say something important about something bigger than just your own experience. At least that's how it always used to be. Yeah, I mean, literally YouTube's original slogan before it was bought out by Google was broadcast yourself. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I mean, like, I, I think about like the pre-smartphone digital age of like, you know, what was like the most memorable commercial to me was like Geico's long running, you know, it's so easy. A caveman can do it. And they would have their own little controversies about, you know, is caveman an un-PC term. And like, it have its own little world inside this like commercial cinematic universe. And then like nowadays, you don't even know if you're being sold something when someone makes a video or a, a prompt, although they require you to like put ads up nowadays, but, or saying that this is an ad, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that, it's either that or more, and I think this applies more maybe to women than it does men uh, with millennial writers, is that there was this retreat into the into the innocence, retreat to the child, the you know, the the eternal spring that you never want to go away because most millennial writers went into like young adult fiction mm -hmm. and they went to tell all these stories about like teenage girls that could do anything that they want. They were totally badass. They didn't need no man to tell them whatever. And the, the Bechdel test is so important. Uh, whereas, um, and like, that's where it went for a lot of like female millennial writers, which I, I'm not surprised by at all because I can't, I can count 20 people off the top of my head that I went to college with that all went to a master's degree program because they were so afraid to face the real world and to get a oh, real yeah. job. Mm -hmm. And so like, if anything, you know, it's the, we have, we are dragged along, but so many people made the decision to stay like Lazarus, to stay in the confines of, Oh, just being told what to do. I'll just go to school again and I'll do this. I I'll, I'll put off making any major life choices. Um, and I, I notice that it's more with women than I do with men, although there's more than a fair share of millennial writers and millennial screenwriters and things like that that 
want to be children again. That's why I find like this latest, you know, series of like television and movies for the next generation of kids or whatever. Like they, they literally Pixar literally has a movie about like, you know, the, the Asian Canadian experience in Toronto right after nine 11 is turning red thing. But like the, the things about like menstruation and, uh, and puberty. And it's like only a millennial would write this. <laughs> only a millennial woman would write this about yeah. you know returning to the childhood and the awkward growing up years nothing about a good story because for a lot of millennials like you didn't get a good story you had you know two maybe three financial crises the dot-com bubble the 2007 2008 whatever's going to come up next on the horizon and then the war on terror in the backdrop it's not like you had a, a semblance of normalcy you know there was no mayberry for the millennials and uh, the story kind of really does picture that, that no, there was no Mayberry, but on top of that, there were people willing to uh, commit heinous violence in defense of making sure you never get Mayberry. Yeah, I mean, there's no Mayberry, but you can build Mayberry in Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but I'm sure it's possible. I'm sure it's fun. I'm sure. I've, that's the one video game I've never played is Minecraft. Um it was very weird. I was dating someone a while back and they were like, you really have to try Minecraft. And I was like, I don't see the appeal and I could like go out and like dig a trench or whatever, you know, like <laughs> I, I'm sure I get more out of planting a garden than I do like, you know, going into the nether or whatever. But you know, I yeah. guess that's the, the differences between various people. True. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I don't want to, I mean, I do want to go into all of these stories. And so, I mean, um, you know, the, the Casper house, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, this, I, I'm getting this like dour, you know, rust belt kind of story of like small American towns that are being eaten alive by like dollar, dollar generals. And then I get this delightful out of, you know, like almost color of the sky type weird uh, eldritch Egyptian God where oil is the blood of the earth type thing. And mm -hmm. it was just a very pleasant surprise. Like, Oh, I'm not going to get this like weird company man has to do his duty. It's, company man encounters strange horror and what does he have to do with it in the backdrop of living in this small town that he's a complete stranger to while building a dollar general like it's just uh it was very it was a pleasant little romp despite the uh the ending which i'm not going to spoil uh it was very it was just a nice like turn of pace because i i had gotten two really heavy hitting stories and then you know i'm halfway through this book and i'm like oh okay you know i'm getting this story about some uh egyptian god that you know was known about in the 1800s or whatever and it's being rediscovered in post financial crisis america it was very uh, very entertaining in it and i was wondering was is this clearly where the twilight zone influence comes in but when you were writing these stories were you thinking maybe i should lighten up a little well actually <clears throat> the funny thing it i would say the casper house is definitely the uh most oddball one out of them and I think part of that is because I actually had the idea for that story the longest out of any of them. Mm. I had the kind of general outline um, for probably eight or nine years uh, before I finally wrote it down. Um, and due to the format of the story and the kind of topics, I thought it fit quite well as I mean, literally it's a housing crisis. Um, and so I, I kind of repurposed it for that reason. And then as I was rewriting it and, and putting parts of it down for the first time, I was like, yeah, I think this will actually work with a few tweaks. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's maybe a, a little different tonally, maybe because it was a younger, such a younger version of my brain that first came up with it. Um, but I don't think it took a whole lot of adjustment to thematically kind of make it gel with the overall arc. No, I mean, I didn't, I don't think it, it stuck out because it is this interesting story, but I was also kind of reminded of David Lynch in a lot of respects to Twin Peaks. Cause I get this sort of calm Pacific Northwestern kind of feel uh, and in the midst of, you know, this man trying to do his job to build this daily dollar, you know, our dollar general or dollar tree stand in, mm -hmm. uh, we encounter this otherworldly being this, this, you know, Egyptian esque deity uh, that isn't really even Egyptian, you know, he doesn't recognize the names, but it, to me, it was just very like, you know, instead of Dale Cooper, it's like, what if we got some pissed off millennial that managed to barely scrape by after the market crashed? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was like, this is how like, you know, the average millennial would respond, whereas Dale Cooper would, you know, gather the bookhouse boys. He's like, no, this man seriously considering making a deal with this, you know, Eldritch entity about how to to get you know, all of life's cares out of his mind and to, to bargain with it for material goods, because that's kind of what we as millennials were all sold on was like, you know, if you go to school, go to college, you know, get good grades, you, you'll succeed. And then, you know, what we, what we did get was a, a financial crisis where all the wealth is still, all the wealth and power is still in this like gerontocracy. And mm -hmm. uh, you, you're now going to have to fight with the zoomers and everybody else for maybe a home that you probably won't get. Like I was just reading today, someone was saying like your financial plans may require you to have an inheritance. And I was like, it's just like, that's the state of how things are. Like, yeah, I probably yeah. would consider making a deal with some beetle God to maybe make things okay for me and myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the, uh, it's definitely the libertarian phase of the, of the millennial story. Um, uh, it, it's kind of fascinating how fast that, uh, the Ron Paul, like Ron Paul revolution came and went. Yeah. You had that, that era between like 2008, 2012, that was just very, very uh, hyper competitive, very libertarian kind of like anarcho capitalist sort of phase that a lot of people went through. Um, and it's kind of forgotten about, I feel like the, the zoomers, the Zoomers can very easily laugh at the libertarians and be like, how can anyone be a libertarian? Or like, you are a libertarian, very cringe or whatever. And it's like, I don't know, unless you live through the Ron Paul time where a lot of us were able to kind of convince ourselves that things were still in a good enough shape that you could give the old Ron Paul revolution a try. It's kind of hard to contextualize it now. Um because it was it, it was a very unique time, and it almost felt possible at the time. It, um, it really, it really did. Uh, my political awakening, or like as a teenager, was like the Ron Paul Revolution. I was like, this I could get on board with. And like, if you talk to most people in our sphere, they'll probably tell you that they had a libertarian phase, mm -hmm. especially the the millennials. And I think that that's very true. And the sort of. Uh, screw you i've got mine sort of ayn rand virtue of selfishness attitude that was kind of there for the time like you know this republican thing ain't working out this democrat thing ain't working out either you know maybe if we could return to some good old market values or something we could make it work uh you know there was truth to that i mean there's a lot more to ron paul than just say the the libertarian or austrian economic side but you know there was yeah. people genuinely looking for how do i escape this 
Um, and this one kind of embodies it in a very Rod Serling, David Lynch like way. Um, but it, it does sort of illustrate that like, yeah, you know, like I, I was a man that climbed up the corporate ladder. I, I worked it off. I, I had nothing to my name when I worked for the daily dollar and I'm not going to let anything get in my way now. Not even this woman, not this deity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much. I, you're, I think that's a very apt description, very much the libertarian phase of the, the millennial story. Cause you kind of went two directions after the, the Ron Paul revolution phase. You either became like a diehard leftist, what we might, you know, archaically call a social justice warrior or mm-hmm. you uh, you turned into one of those, I just want to play video games, man. And then, of course, you couldn't escape politics because Gamergate happened like a year and a half after Ron Paul Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I, I didn't know that this was your the, the story that you had the longest in mind. I, I almost thought it was deliberate where it was placed. I was like, ah, oh, he's going to give us a, a lighthearted tale after these like two really heavy stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it's very interesting to think that this was your first one or that was in your head the longest. Cause yeah, if I didn't know that I would have definitely thought, ah, oh, well, thank you, Marty. Cause I definitely needed to pick me up to smile or to chuckle at compared to, you know, this gruesome war on an Island in respects to the drug cartels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was placed there in that order for chronological reasons, but, um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's the one I've lived with the longest. I, I still have mixed feelings about it. I enjoyed I enjoyed finally writing it down after so many years, but it's definitely the one that's going to be kind of hanging around in the back of my head for the most time. Well, why do you have mixed feelings about it? Um, so what I was saying about Holy Hunt, feeling like I was writing, you know, as I was writing it down, I was like, okay, I like I like this. I'm I'm good with what I'm writing down. It's hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. But in the process of writing the Casper House, it's and this is probably just as a, a as a fiction writer sort of thing. But you'll sometimes be in this gray area where you're like, this could be good, people could really like this, or this could be just okay. And I have no idea if it's going to be you know good or maybe just okay, because um, it's very different from the sort of thing I usually write, and so. You know, you just you don't have that concrete feel for like, okay, I think this is like, I think this is going to be good. And so it's it's not that I don't think that I was capable of pulling it off or um, I, I don't think that it's an interesting story. It's just difficulty placing it in the context of the other things that I've written and being able to confidently be like, okay, like I I know what this is and I know it was a success. So that's where you just kind of have to rely on people who read it to tell you in the end. Whereas there's things you can be more or less confident on that you've pulled off or not. Well, I mean, that's definitely fair. I mean, um, I've had, I've had a good friend of mine, uh, T.R. Hudson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He wrote Automaton, but yeah, you know, I, 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 uh, I reviewed his book. Oh, good. Well, I, I, he and I, he and I are friends, um, we, I mean, we, we talk on the phone regularly and things like that. And he's always pressuring me to, to write more fiction and less essays, political stuff. And I'm like, none of this is good. And um, he's just like, we're going to have to do it anyway. Just get over it. And so uh, it's, it's always interesting to hear what the writer always has to say about his own stories. But for me, it was this nice break, uh, mm-hmm. not, not to the point of absurdity, but to the point of 
yes, there have been times where I know a lot of people that would make these kind of ridiculous deals um, in order to escape their material conditions. And I mean, even now where there's sort of this resurgence of like religion, I mean, the COVID definitely was a big part of that. But I mean, there has always been a focus, whether it's like left wing Twitter or millennials that vote Democrat or millennials that vote Republican and got on the Trump train or whatever. Both of them are deeply fascinated with like the material conditions um, that, that, that's never escaped them. And I think that's mainly due to their upbringing, because I mean, even in like 2016, which is sort of like the preeminent like millennial election, I think, in a lot of ways, where I know people talk about 2012 and in 2008 but i really think it's it's 2016 because it's finally these people are having a referendum on you know everything that came out of like their their younger days and now they're they're having revenge and even then there are the 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 bernie bros that everyone kind of mocked or had fun with thinking that he could win you know here's how he could still win guys they still Mm -hmm. a, a large portion of them went over across the aisle and voted for trump in 16 because again there was this economic aspect to it. And I don't think we'll, I don't think as long as this generation lives, even when we'd become old and gray, that we're still going to be talking about the economy and material conditions and uh, what kind of deals did we make or what decisions have we done? Or have we been down to our last dollar before? And uh, this story, despite what some people might consider absurd or twilight zone or black mirror esque, I definitely think that it, it hits home for that. Um, Cause yeah, like we're, I still think about that. Like, you know, like we, we, we live in a post-recession world. We've lived under like a decade now of quantitative easing, you know, like we're never going to go back to whatever came before, you know? Yeah. Uh, which I think kind of ties in rather perfectly for, for the last story, American bastard, uh, which is a fantastic title um, in and of its own right. But uh, boy, oh boy, does Mr. Uh, Ashbery remind me of my teaching assistant, who was a man. And, and, and I'll tell the story because uh, just because I, I, he's so relatable, because I, I know a guy that, you know, who was in his younger days, like started his own Occupy chapter, was a diehard core millennial generation, uh, and only just went back to college later in his like. Uh, early to mid thirties and now as a part of like a, he has a PhD and is a part of the system now. Um, and it's just, it's like, yep, I, I know the Occupy Wall Street guys. I know the, the globalist anti-globalization, you know, I, I, I watched the, the battle in Seattle documentary about the anti-world trade organization protests. Like I know every bit of this guy's ideology, despite not adhering to it once in my life and what it means to sort of encounter the, you know, going back to your roots because, you know, people talk about that you can move and you can reinvent yourself. But um, I think that there's a deeply like genetic or bloodline sort of phenomenon that like, and you see it with a lot of other writers, like, you know, it doesn't matter that Cormac McCarthy was born in New England. Cormac McCarthy is a Tennessean uh, born by blood just because that's where he grew up at. And that's the people he grew around. I mean, you can't escape where you, where you grew up. Uh, you can't escape where you're from. And uh, you can't escape the fact that, hey, you're, you were born into wealth and of means and you rebelled against it like so many millennials do. You know, I hate dad is like the political slogan of today's left. But this story is a very, a deeply interpersonal story of in terms of growing up, but also like coming to terms of what happens when we have to come back home 
and not on the world's best of circumstances. But it's it's definitely one of those stories for the listeners out there that if you had those politics uh, growing up or if you went to Occupy Wall Street or even made fun of them, uh, you're, you're going to know the our sort of main man of this story very quickly and identify with him even if you disagree with him. But uh, that's that's me rambling on there, Marty, and I apologize. I just wanted to get that out there. Um, this one does end on a, on a much happier note than the rest, as we sort of talked about. And what about this story? Did you enjoy writing? Did you have an Occupy Wall Street moment when you were younger? Did you have those kind of politics, or did you know people who did? Um, what was your inspiration for this one? Well, I didn't have that specific. Well. Here's the thing. Occupy Wall Street gets this uh, this post facto kind of reassessment. And I've seen this on Twitter and there's some truth to it that Occupy and the uh, battle in Seattle and all that stuff was like purely anti-globalist leftism, which is not completely true. There was actually a, a pretty broad coalition of anti-globalist and even right libertarian um, people involved in these different movements, including Occupy. Uh, the original Occupy, uh, and you can see this kind of with the Tea Party too, was definitely more of a kind of anti-establishment, insurgent, uh, very messy, not very well organized sort of thing. It isn't until that it, you know, with the Tea Party, for example, it coalesced around basically a Republican Party psyop that took the energy and tried to turn it back into Republican Party politics. And then with Occupy, you have a sort of a similar thing with Democrat politics. Though you have the interesting issue of Occupy being shut down in the first couple, what was it, first couple of weeks of Obama's turn. He, yeah. They sent the police in and cleaned it up. So, I mean, there's a lot of ink spilled on you know, Occupy being genuine and then getting captured by the progressive stack and being turned into kind of the origin of woke politics. And you have people talking about how, oh, it's the corporations, man. They just want us to turn on each other. It's, that's why they introduce they introduce like racism into the mix. And th there's a lot of takes on like what Occupy was and, and what a lot of these political movements were. I mean, a lot of it I just see is it was just kind of this millennial striking out against the kind of powerlessness that had been presented by the politics of, of the late nineties and the early two thousands. I don't really see that much of Occupy being that leftist. Really. It was just anti-establishment. There was definitely some leftism involved. Um, but it, Occupy was also tied in with a lot of the Ron Paul people too. Um, so it, it was it wasn't by any means exclusively leftist. Um, but yeah, American Bastard, I, I wanted to kind of harken back to some of those conflicts and have a character that had kind of been a part of that anti-establishment. He's definitely more of a leftist for sure. Um, but kind of one of the honest leftists in a way that used to exist. I mean, that, that used to, you could actually talk to them, you know, this sort of, I, I remember talking to some of these people in the early two thousands who were, 
whether they were like anti anti Iraq, anti Afghanistan, um, left wingers who were also kind of got into a little bit of the 9-11 truth weirdness and the Occupy stuff. Like they're more like the conspiracy right is today than they were like the leftists of today. So I kind of wanted to have a character emerging out of that world, which seems very weird to us now because of how, you know, how set in stone our different political camps are around, particularly on the left, certain you know, diehard narratives that you cannot stray from or you're not part of their, you know, part of their system or what have you. And then have a character coming out of that somewhat disillusioned, honest in his own way, but disillusioned with where things are going. Because in this story, you have illustrated, you know, the malaise of the Obama years. For any for any true leftist of the Bush era that had any sort of self-respect and was, you know, internally consistent with their own views, the Obama years was a massive letdown for them. And I've known people like that because in a lot of ways, when it came to foreign policy, when it came to economic policy, one of the big complaints was that, and this is where you have people like, you know, Glenn Greenwald and these, these people who don't really have a political home anymore, um, because they were the old, the old leftists who were disappointed by the and disillusioned by the Obama years, and they couldn't bring themselves to just go along with the party line, and so they're kind of, you know, after the malaise of the Obama years, which in some ways accelerated things very far leftward, but in a lot of ways, when it comes to economics and foreign policy, was kind of a continuation of of the Bush policies. Um, so you have characters like the main character who are just end up being disillusioned by this sort of thing. And especially with the, at the beginning, it, it starts out with him finding out that his very wealthy father is dead and um, him being this kind of hard bitten leftist activist who kind of left the family behind. He's not really expecting anything out of it. And so he's kind of cajoled into doing the right thing as a son and going back to New York city and being around for his father's, his father's memorial service and all this. And it's kind of the process of, of him like waking up to these, these things that are beyond, you know, the anti-establishment economics that picks up on the honesty in the form of leftism that he portrays. And the fact that that, kind of in the in the going through Obama to post Obama era just becomes this weird self-contradictory thing that you either have to get over or you have to just you know become a caricature of yourself like a lot of people who profess to have this I mean they have this modern leftist politics but it has very little in common with you know 15 20 years ago oh at least in like in the core values and so I wanted to illustrate a character who kind of goes through that process and kind of has to come to terms with being honest about the way the world has changed, like in that, you know, post-Bush era, um, which in a way is what gives it a happier ending, because unlike many people who just became, you know, hard-bitten regime shills um, in the post-Bush years, um, someone who's a little more introspective about it and a little more um, consistent in their uh, in their beliefs, 
And so in that, in one way that it makes it very, a very hopeful story is because he is consistent in that way. He's able to kind of escape from it. And um, I mean, you don't get like some sort of extreme revelation at the end, but you get like a small revelation of like the realization of what actually matters Um, and kind of giving up on these trappings of, of activism, not necessarily because none of it matters, but because you kind of have to do what you can with what you have. Yes. And I, that's kind of why I, I think it's very fitting that at the beginning of the story, he's just out on the Appalachian trail that, you know, he's, he's a man that is literally out in the wilderness. He's got no connection. It kind of reminds me of the, what year is it from Jumanji? You know, like he's, he's coming back into this world that he had railed against. And you kind of see it when, you know, he sees, um, you know, his, his family again at the memorial service and the, the two twins are talking to him and he's sort of talking about his politics and everything like that. And they're like, yeah, oh yeah. Mom said you were a bit of a loser. And then the dad is like, did you say the word socialism and, and things like that? Like, you know, very, a very different kind of politic than what he may have been used to or what he had spent his youthful days uh, railing against why he reminds me so much of my old teaching assistant because there are very few old leftists like him you know mr ashbury's character or or that of um an honest old leftist like glenn greenwald because so many of them just sort of took the next current thing and got on board with it like my old teaching assistant found out who i was on twitter and he had he had snidely remarked i was like some christian fascist or whatever and it was just like <laughs> you know i used to have long conversations with him where i would agree with a lot of what he had to say and now you know that's ah oh, i'm a part of the fash now it's too late i guess you know it's kind of sad whereas this story is a lot about how that idealism makes first contact with reality um, and there's no greater way than for the man to put the childish things behind than usually in the wake of your, of your father's death. I mean, it's what, uh, there's that old saying that, you know, a, um, a boy finally becomes a man when he buries his father. And this story, mm-hmm. I think really does epitomize that in the context of we're all still trying to get grounded and stable after the financial crisis. And it's, he, he himself, despite hating who he is, is recognizing that he's still a lot like his father, even though he never got, a, got along with him. And you, you see this with a lot of the the men who had served with his dad throughout his years in business, saying you're very much like your dad, you're very much like Walter. And it's very true that like, if you don't get along with your parents, like if you didn't get along with your dad, like sons and fathers, if they don't get along, odds are it's because they're very similar to one another. And mm-hmm. I think that this story does a very good job illustrating that, despite their political disagreements, their ideologies or what kind of lives that they had, they are very similar at the end and you can't escape who you were born from or who you were born with. Cause that's all you get when you're born, you get your family and that's it. Um, yeah. Take it or leave it. And even if you leave it, you can't, you can't escape it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to, end it on a not like a you know syrupy sweet morality tale sort of thing but what you were saying about about putting the childish things away about 
just the, the millennial process of having to reach that point because a lot of millennials, if they do eventually wake up and step outside of their kind of avenue of escapism from, you know, the inflictions of the world, <laughs> the, the one after another infliction of the world, whether it be financial crisis after financial crisis or the global war on terror or these, you know, mass terror events that, that terrorize them. Um, yeah, there's this point, there's this point of finality where you just have to realize that this is the world, at least how it is now. You can't continue making excuses about how it could be better or should have been better for you given in given circumstances. And you just have to do what you can with what you have. And that's the thing with millennials. I feel like they've been, a lot has been inflicted on them, but at the same time, they, there's a lot of self-inflicted kind of safetyism around like, oh, like I, we don't make enough money to like, I don't make enough money to have a kid or I don't, you know, I, it's too dangerous of a world out there for men for me to, you know, try and take a jump and get married to someone. And so you, you see these millennials who are, you know, into their mid thirties and they've maybe had a girlfriend for eight years or whatever, and they're still not married. Um, or they've been married for five years and they still don't have any kids and they just have decided they don't want kids. And there's this moment where you just have to, you have to, it's, it's not like you, you can't leave ideology or, or your convictions behind. It, it's interesting. It, it's like the, a lot of the debate that goes on, on Twitter about like wife guys, you know, about like, Oh, our, our wife guys just retiring to the suburbs to, you know, run, <laughs> run their lawnmower and not have to think about the hard questions and just like check out and be like, okay, I won. Like I've got my, I've got my agreeable, my, my agreeable six who agreed to marry me <laughs> and we're going to have a couple kids and I'm just going to pretend like, you know, this little world in, in suburbia is, is like the end is like the, the ends the end victory, civilization, cultural victory or whatever. Um, and I think there is some truth to that, to the critique of that. Um, but at the same time, uh, once you reach a certain age, uh, you kind of, you know, if, if your generation is not the generation called on to make some big sweeping change in circumstances, or if that opportunity hasn't presented itself, then uh, sometimes you just have to... Um, you have to just do what you can in the circumstances and not every, not every generation is going to have the circumstances where they can actually do something, you know, fantastic or, or world shaking um, to improve their circumstances or the circumstances of their country. And I think there's points where millennials thought that they were going to be that generation, uh, whether that be with Occupy. I mean, a lot of the things that we've talked about, whether that be, um, like the different slacktivism events and like Coney 2012. I was about to say, yeah, we've kind yeah, of turned our activism inward. It's no longer with the physical presence. I mean, yeah, Zoomers are doing all of the physical stuff, you know, doing those really gay throw paint on famous paintings and protest oil, which feels totally sponsored. But yeah, it's all internal and focusing on the 
again, it's still, it's narcissistic, right? Like, oh, I can just tweet about it and I'm doing activism and I can tell people that I'm doing my part, but not, not really anything beyond that. Well, and that's the thing is like, no, no matter how many times millennials may have been told that they were going to be, you know, a big change making generation and whether it be climate change or what have you, it's up, it's up to them to like, you know, save the world or what have you, that, that ended up not being the case. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be the case with the millennial generation. I mean, they were told that for certain political reasons, um, but it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be millennials that, that throw off the proverbial like neocon, like terrible economy, American shackles as it were. And so uh, in that last story, I mean, you kind of have to come to terms with that and you have to do the best that you can with the options that are available to you. It, and it, it may come off as like kind of a, you know, a sad sort of resignation or uh, uninspired realism. But um, in the absence of some sort of heroic direction, um, you have to just do the best that you can and do right by the people around you. And I think that even that as kind of a basic assumption in the face of all these failed revolutions of the millennials is something that a lot of millennials have a hard time grasping onto. I mean, there's so many now aging into their, into their mid to late thirties who are still talking about, you know, the same, the same slacktivism sort of topics that that were big in the in the 20 teens and the early 2000s um as if magically that energy is going to come back or, or be renewed or or somehow become relevant again and it's like you can't just put off becoming you know a grown-up human being and and trying to make something decent out of what you have if you're still, you know, just going to keep pretending like this, all these basically failed political marketing <laughs> campaigns, uh, if you're still pretending like those are relevant or, or if you believe in them or think that they were anything real. Um, and so this, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people trapped still in that kind of thinking that those things were real or that they were going to come back in some way. I, I definitely see it very prominent, actually, on sort of like what I guess what you would call right wing Twitter. And even to call it right wing is dubious at best, I think, in some respects. But like they'll talk about like, oh, we need to implement this or we, we need to go out and do things and we, we need to stop being so online and then proceeds to talk about why we're so online. And I'm somewhat guilty of that. And uh, then I see people that will uh, you know, talk about like, well, this is what we need to do in order to achieve like based world or whatever. And it feels as if it's the other side of the coin of like, what do we achieve when like the bankers are like arrested, executed, sourced, military type deal, <laughs> maybe like 10 <laughs> years ago. And yeah. it's, um, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to see where that's come because there was, and I don't mean to like invoke drama to talk about other, or like what other people have said, but there, there was uh, a prominent account that had said someone, for instance, like Roosh V, who's a very prominent, wrote books on being a pickup artist and had retreated to his ancestral tradition, which is like the Serbian Orthodox Church or whatever. And now he's like a diehard born again Orthodox Christian. 
but this person had said that what he had done was a retreat into religion, uh, a retreat back into these things. And it kind of reminds me of the the debate over wife guys and things like that, or aspiring mm-hmm. wife guys. Like, are, are we retreating or are we at the age where we're old enough now that we kind of recognize that maybe the idealistic things that we were told that we could change the world isn't going to happen and that maybe some of the nice material things like not being alone and dying alone are kind of nice and maybe we should have them. Um, and again, like uh, American bastard ends on sort of that happier note with this authentic, you know, 2012 nineties, you know, kind of leftism, which I, I don't even know if I can call it leftism because there, there are plenty of the Ron Paul guys that would have been, that are anti WTO, anti NAFTA and all that sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. You know, but he, he he recognizes also kind of what's important, which was legacy. And that that story in this story, American Bastard hits that home because it's the it's this perfect, you know, like Omega point of all of these sort of millennial things like, you know, we, we've got international trade and we've got the issue of China. We've got the retail industry, we've got, you know, commercial banking, we've got the financial crisis, we've got housing market, we've got our own crazy lives of drugs and experiences and politics that are sometimes really radical. And then at the end of it all, what matters is, and I'm sorry, listeners, but you're going to just hear the ending bit line here without the context is, well, let's go find my son. And I think that that kind of does put a really perfect pin end point to this series of vignettes because you know it's well what do we do now and that's a question i ask myself all the time doing what i do like with politics or with and i've done a lot of irl organizing phone banking stuff like that and i always ask myself like so what if we win like what now you know like i always think about the end credit scene of finding nemo where all the other fish escape the dentist's office they get in their little baggies and they get into the ocean and the puffer <laughs> fish asks now what <laughs> uh, and I think that that's the perfect question that everyone should ask themselves. It's like, oh, say you get all this, now what? Uh, an American bastard ends on trying to answer that question. And I think that it's the perfect fitting and it's the perfect sort of question that millennials should be asking. Uh, and American bastard is definitely the story that poses that question the most out of all four of these. And chronologically, it's it, it's very fitting that for me, a late 20 something and you are a couple of years older than me are, are kind of also grasping with those questions of like, well, well now what uh, do we retreat to the burbs? You know, do I turn into the 30 year old boomer meme with his white monster and his lawnmower at 7 a.m.? Or is there something more to it? Um, and I think that this book and all four vignettes highlight that very well of this is what we grew up with. This is the epoch we live in. And what do we do with it? And I, I think that's the question I do want to ask you, Marty, is, is um, what do we do with it? I mean, you've written these stories and you pose some really deep questions and sort of this retrospective on a generation that is indeed for Westerners, especially Americans. I mean, we, we've kind of grown up in the less than stellar conditions of any empire witnessing, I think, perhaps the birth pangs of its collapse where where do you where do you see yourself doing i i, I don't imagine the, you know being a novelist is your full-time job but you know are, are you grasping with these same questions both as a writer but also as a millennial the the what now do i do i retreat am i a wife guy things like that 
Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why why I write is to figure out what I think about this stuff. I mean, a large part of it is just me trying to to parse through what have I what I've experienced, what I've seen, whether it be you know manufactured or whether it be cutting to the pretty close to what is reality in these circumstances and, and figuring out like, okay, well, what sense can I make of this? And honestly, I, I don't know. Like I, it, it's like a cliche to say that someone who endeavors to be artistic shouldn't be like specifically political in any way, but I just find it hard to be um, specifically political in today's day and age, which isn't to say that I don't have very strong convictions about the world and and how it ought to be. Um, But in the uh, danger of sounding like some kind of post-Marxist or something, which I'm not, I think we do live in a very post-political time in a lot of ways. I mean, everyone's participation with politics is either consumeristic or uh, just a entertainment experience. Um, And I think we live in the, we live in the post bowling alone world. Uh, There's not really, I mean, one of the reasons why all these internet communities are so, everyone's so obsessed with them is because it's just neo community. It's people's attempt to, create some sort of ability to have that person that, you know, you log into whatever website, whether it be Twitter or, or, or what have you to communicate with people like you instead of, you know, stopping by the bowling alley on the way home to bowl a couple, a couple, um, a couple frames and, and drink a beer. Um, and so I don't, I, I don't really know what the future holds. I, I don't think that, that politics as it's structured in America and the way that it, it currently operates is going to make things any better. Um, in fact, I only really see it as making things worse. I think it can really only go in one direction now. Um, and I think a lot of that also has to do with technology. I, 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 I say that I hate writing commentary and I don't write a lot about, of commentary. But one thing that I have written about is the effect of technology on politics, the effect of consumerism on politics, and the fact that it's a it's like a one-way trap sort of thing where like your your cat puts its head in the cone when it gets like surgery or whatever and it can't back its head out. Or like the those fish traps where they go one direction in and it's it's like a it's shaped kind of like a funnel and they don't know how to get back out. It's this, it's the same thing with what technology and these, these modern, these modern processes and ways of thinking around um, social media and new forms of communication has just kind of done to our ability to actually participate in politics. Like even and this is where I'm going to just get ranty here, but even just like logging on to like a Twitter.com and interacting politically on there changes the way that you view politics because a internet platform is fundamentally egalitarian and in, in the way that it approaches people. 
And so you're already putting yourself into a, a perfectly egalitarian context. Um, like the, the internet is the, the great leveling field where it doesn't matter if, you know, it doesn't matter if you're disabled or if you're, um, if you are a very ugly person or a man or a woman, like you're taken, you're taken on the same contextual level of your ideas and your, your contribution to the discussion. So it's even more hyper egalitarian than American politics has ever been. Um, because at least political candidates, for example, you know, can be tall or short or fat or what have you, and you can make a value judgment based on them. Uh, just even their appearance, if not the way they talk or their ideas or what have you. Whereas on the internet, which is things are only going to get more and more so on the internet, there's more people moving their lives over to the internet year after year, especially after the pandemic. And I think that, you know, Zoomers have grown up with just the internet and social media as, you know, their second life or their main life that they log on to every morning. So I think that these, these political discussions and these processes and ideas are only going to get more technologized as time goes on. And that sort of egalitarian level playing field, which isn't really egalitarian because there's algorithms and people pulling, you know, favorite strings behind their favorite ideas is, is only going to more so become the, the playing field for politics. And it doesn't favor uh, a return toward hierarchy or a return toward the people who actually have good, healthy ideas um, getting any sort of advantage in that playing field. It, it uh, advantage is very uh, negative, uh, antisocial kind of dysgenic concepts because the internet is dysgenic. Like it, it doesn't allow charismatic, well-spoken, well-thought-out, attractive people to attract the, the people around them that they should. It actually appeals to these masses of, you know, these masses of people who have a bone to pick with, with society can cluster in these huge groups where you have people posting the most heinous thing you've ever seen and you've got 100,000 likes on it or whatever because you just have this, just this equalizing mass of resentful people who've all found each other in one place. And are all considered equal with people who have much better ideas and maybe, you know, throttled or disregarded because, because they're on the outs, like in our current culture, as far as their ideas or, or thought processes. So I think that the technology, like technologization of the discussion is only going to more and more over time favor bad ideas. I think it, kind of only goes that one direction. I mean, you can see with, you know, chat GTP and AI and all that stuff, um, the people's fingers are on the scale with that sort of thing. You may think that some of the tools can be helpful for um, people who are anti-regime or <clears throat> more for like uh, a, a meritocracy in a true sense. Um, but I don't think they're ever really going to get the chance to make that case in such a technologized world. Cause I think those, those structures actually um, work against them. I feel like if there was going to be a fifth story to this book, it would be about the angry Twitter user. 
Because <laughs> I feel like that's sort of been the end point of the millennial story. And it's strange to think about it, too, because, you know, there was this, like, Keith Abloh, he's this, like, he wrote this, like, piece in Fox News, like, five, you know, over, like, eight years ago. And it was about, like, Ted Kaczynski. But, like, that wasn't the point that he was getting across so much was whether or not Ted was right. He was He was pointing out that, like, social media you know, it has been around and Barack Obama was the first candidate to really take advantage of it because, you know, 2007 onwards, because, you know, it'd be a little different than like George W. Bush having like a Cinco de Mayo campaign website to lure Hispanic voters compared to like hashtag hope and change or whatever. And now (laughs) and now we've got all these hateful niche sub communities or like what Walter Lippmann would call these people that live in different pseudo realities, just trying to ratio one another and like yeah you're absolutely right like i like yeah people can have a live leak phase or whatever but like ha- were you a tnd poster on twitter you know like <laughs> is is mom and dad like are your are your future children going to find your only fans are they going to find like your your groiper edits with you know spinny wheels and all sorts of stuff in the background like i those are some legit questions that i think we're gonna come to reckon with in, in the in the near future because um, you know, that my, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Dave, the distributist, he had said, I think we're going to see a real mental health crisis in the next few years is the childless millennials who are in their thirties hit menopause or realize they can't have kids. Uh, and I think that that's true. And I think that all that Twitter has done is amplified that. So, I mean, if there was a fifth story in the book, I think it would be the, the online activist or something like that. But uh, the, the last question I wanted to ask you would be uh, is actually that if there were a fifth story in Millennium, uh, what what part of the Millennial generation would would you cover? Well, um, not to get too ahead of myself because I like to make grandiose plans, and then I mean it usually takes years for me to finally um, make good on them. But my current plan is actually to eventually make a second volume of Millennium um, because there's more of the millennial story that needs to be told, um, kind of ending it around the post-Occupy Wall Street uh, phase is certainly not the end because we've had a lot more since then. Um, but it's not the next project that I plan on finishing. So it would probably be a couple years out. But I do, um, so as far as ideas, that I would address in that one. Um, I want to actually continue and make a second part of the story, uh, Holy Hunt, because I actually have an idea for a second half of it. Um, Same thing with American Bastard. I have an idea for a second half of it. And then as far as the other sections to fill it out, I'm not sure if I'm going to include this, but um, on my WordPress, I have a story that I wrote earlier this year it's uh, I think it's Marty Phillips writes at wordpress.com um, called Dreamcatcher, which I would probably rewrite change and implement it in some way. And it's about it's it's what would bring the millennium volume two into the Internet age of the millennial. It addresses kind of like, you know, simulated worlds living in the dream world. Um, kind of the the general concept of the story is that there's a sometime in the near future there's the ability to use this transmitter to when you when you go to sleep to put yourself in your own dreams perfectly lucidly so every dream you have is a lucid dream 
you can do whatever you want in your dreams. Um, you can like program scenarios before you go to bed. And then when you go to sleep, since it's your, not your waking mind, it's your sleeping mind, you get to live out these like preset scenarios that you've set for yourself as though you're experiencing it for the first time. And so it deals a lot with kind of the effect that that technology has on the world with obviously allegorical parallels to kind of the escapism that the internet has created for the millennial generation and possibly probably more so for the, the zoomer generation though with millennials, I think a lot of us were young enough that we were able to get sucked in pretty early too. Um, so if, if I were to continue um, and if there were to be another story that would kind of move things into that, uh, into the future or, or present, um, I would probably include that one in it, but I tentatively am planning on doing a second volume. Uh, that is after I finish the current novel that I'm working on, which I've been working on for like a decade. God knows if I'll even finish it. So we'll see, <laughs> but it's, it's on the books. Eventually I do actually want to do a volume two. So it would be a, a two volume set. Well, that gives me some hope. I, I look forward to whenever it will come out. Uh, I, I do look forward to when this other volume comes out. Cause yeah, I, I, I imagine that like, like I said, this book does capture, I think a lot of the four quadrants from say 2000, well, really even the, the late nineties, but I mean like the, the late nineties to say like 2013, like 2012, I feel like it covers a lot of the millennial story there and these different quadrants of life. The, the I've got mine, screw you, progressive American soldiers and what that means to stay in the fight, uh, you know, 9-11 and making sense of your own world around you. I, I think that this does a very good job at offering a fictional but very realistic millennial historiography that hasn't been completely digitized. Um, where, you know, there are internet historians and things, but this felt very grounded and it didn't feel like this was something written by like a Twitter poster or whatever. And that's not to throw shade on other writers who are much better Twitter users than I am, but uh, that this is my, that, that is my ultimate compliment to this book is, is that this is a, while fictional, a historiography, almost an autoethnography perhaps, of the millennial generation in this, I, I can't recommend the book enough to people. Um, so with that, uh, Mr. Phillips, where can people find your great work and where can people buy your book? Um, my book is available on both Antelope Hill's website and on Amazon. Um, if I got the URL correct, if you ever want to just catch up on any sort of short fiction I'm writing side projects, I actually just finished writing a story recently um, called The Gauntlet. It's about a kind of Silicon Valley bug man who's uh, AI digital assistant sort of Alexa thing gets hacked and turned into like a racist chud bot that he has to live with 24-7. Um, just kind of like a comedy story. Uh, so you can find that stuff in my WordPress. I think it's Marty Phillips writes at WordPress.com. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and then I'm on Twitter currently, probably won't stick around for very long. I can only can only handle a certain number of months before I inevitably log off. I'm uh, at, uh, at New Age Prisoner, and I think that's everywhere I am online. Well, those links will be down below in the description. 
Uh, I do highly recommend that people check out this book or your first novel, Let Them Look West. Uh, I, I just recently picked that one up. I ordered it. I haven't read it yet, but I do look forward to reading it. So, um, Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book and listen to me gush about it. Uh, I hope that people experience it with just as much pleasure as I did and that they take the time to actually read your work. Um, you can read his finest uh, WordPress and his links down below in the description. So thank you again, Marty, for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for talking to me about it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I appreciate it.